This Magic the Gathering podcast and many more can be heard online at manadeprived.com slash podcasts. Leave a comment and tell us what you think. Fusco, Michael J. Flores. Welcome to the Ancestral Recall Podcast, starring Roman Fusco. That's me. And Michael J. Flores, that's me. Um, this article is from July the 11th, 2005. Um, I think this is my second most favorite, uh, not second most favorite, second most famous Magic the Gathering article I ever wrote. All right. Um, it both won Article of the Year at Star City Ooh. Games that year and... Um, propelled me to writer of the year uh this being a dozen years ago now have you ever heard of this article i have never heard of this article it's Sorry. called uh, magic the intangibles magic the intangibles uh it is known in some circles as the name dropping article <laughs> aren't all your articles the name dropping article <laughs> um one should never use always and never one should always be uh, mindful that they never use always and never. Because it always is always wrong and never is never right. All right. I think of magic as a battle of percentages. You will see in my deck analysis articles that I often use language like, this deck is 60% against that deck. This matchup is close to 50-50 and so on. The easiest place... We can see the percentages that define who wins what games is in deck matchups themselves, where Mind's Desire is too quick for Stompy and Tooth and Nail can outlast the average mono blue control. But the matchups themselves are not the only places where this math talks and ticks. It just so happens that these are the only percentages that most internet articles typically address. Over the course of this article, you might just learn that deck matchups are not even necessarily the most important. Getting lucky and avoiding tilt. At Pro Tour Atlanta, Chris Pakula and I watched Tim Ayton get his face smashed. Tim was coming off of a Grand Prix win in a top four that included Chris's Max Fisher players. The dead guy founder's respect for younger Tayton was obvious as he watched the invitational competitor's position worsen and slip. Tim was on the ropes in one of those games where winning is not a realistic or near a possibility. He kept drawing ineffectual cards that weren't going to get him out of his opponent's superior board position, unmana screw him, or draw him out of the adverse bombs. And certainly, none of his cards was going to do all three at once. He's so good, said Chris dreamily as Tim drew yet another 2-2 for 5. How do you figure, I queried. I'd been playing with Tim since he was knee-high to a grasshopper, and had been told that he was a strong player. But up until his recent success on the grander stage, the Star City column notwithstanding, I've always thought of him as the kid who beat my Steel Golem disc deck with a Scragnoth. I won that tournament, though. Or the medium-talented PTQ winner from EDT's seminal, Call Me Mr. Scrub. 
You know how you you know how when you're losing and you start to play like spit, you make all these mistakes because it doesn't matter anymore. No, Chris didn't actually say spit. Of course. I throw away cards in those games all the time. Me too. But Tim doesn't. Wow. A deceptively vital amount of holding your percentages can be reduced down to this element of technical play. Tim's skill doesn't actually translate to never give up, because sometimes giving up is exactly what you have to do to maximize your chances of winning, given the rules and structure of a real tournament. But it does ultimately come down to the fact that anyone can win the landslide games. The champions are the players who can win the hopeless ones. The best example in the history of Magic occurred in the top eight of Pro Tour New Orleans in 2001. Probable Hall of Fame inductee Darwin Castle, now actual Hall of Fame inductee, was beating definite consensus Hall of Fame inductee Kai Buddha. He was not a consensus inductee. Those people should have their votes removed. Down with Croesus the Perger. And not surprisingly, Kai was both on a short clock and without a grip. Off the top came Kai's fourth illusions of grandeur. This will buy me a couple of turns, thought the German juggernaut as he deployed the pricey enchantment and prepared for yet another wing-flapping bus accident to connect to his face. Pow! In came the dragon legend, or legendary creature dragon. Fierce for six, even when the opponent had no hand. Darwin was far from winning the match, but had this game in his sights. After paying his cumulative upkeep, what did Kai find? On the top of his library, but the donate? The rest is history and a ketchup-covered hat. Did Kai get lucky? Indubitably. But he also famously pointed out that when one plays tight magic, it is often looks like one is getting lucky. Because of his ability to grab hold of the opportunity, a lesser player in a desperate situation often scoops him up is never able to seize the precious and narrow glimpses of hope that Fortuna sometimes bestows on the truly tight. But the great player turns tiny chinks into portholes, then crawls through them while the stunned opponent is busy trying to pick his jaw back up off the floor. For my part, two of the most memorable games in my nine-year career as an off-and-on professional player involve exactly these sorts of plays out of desperate straits. In the top eight of a limited PTQ I eventually won, I was color-screwed in a game three as my opponent's Greet White beatdown deck marched on and on. I remember fighting back literal tears, confident that I had not only the better matchup with my blue-white, but the best deck in the top eight. That if I lost, it would be the cruelest injustice ever to hit the world. Refusing to succumb, I eked out every life point to prolong the game, desperately grabbed at the top of my library for mana, deployed chump-blocked, crossed my fingers, and eventually time-spiraled into Herald of Sarah with Rewind backup. At U.S. Nationals 1999, I started off 5-1, won my first two matches on day two, one of them against the brilliant Dave Humphreys, then slid the next two matches. In order to stay in contention, I had to win an impossible game three, where I could not find a second swamp, but had to survive getting beaten down by multiple encores. In both cases, I had to get a little lucky. Okay, 
The second time, I had to get a lot lucky. I had to hit repeatedly with Cursed Scroll with multiple cards in hand or find an island to stave off death on board. But like Kai said, playing tightly even in the face of a rapidly sliding table and steep odds gives you the opportunity to seize luck when it comes calling. Contrast this kind of play with my first round at regionals this year. Had I blocked my opponent's Kakusho, I probably would have won. As I didn't, I let him get me with a double legend attack. This was probably on the order of a 40% mistake. That is, it shifted the percentages by a huge chunk, moving from an almost sure win to a sure loss. Protecting the margins. For at least a short time in the early part of this century, the center of the magic universe was unquestionably and once again neutral ground New York. John Finkel returned to his position of magic dominance flanked by friends like Steve and Dan OMS, bolstered and propped up by a cadre of professionals and amateurs alike, all eager to join John at the top of the magic echelons. Dave Price was getting screwed out of the top eight at every turn and every other tournament, but was living the dream as a traveling magic professional. The grudge match was producing decks with names like Replenish, Napster, Zevatog, and even I Go. The most drunken and befuddled members of the core neutral ground group, whose fingers stretched as deep as Philadelphia, or even the capital, were making top eights, even if they did pass Savage Firecats for werebears once there. Before Blackjack Poker and the women broke up this inimitable group, focus on magic, Eric Kesselman created a new theory on winning and mistakes. Probably... It came from playing with John, who was at that time more technically adept at the individual plays that make up a well-executed game of Magic than any other player to touch cardboard. Eric said that it was incorrect to dismiss the little mistakes. I just want to make a side note as of how I'm talking about John in this article. John didn't really play Magic at this point. I think He was he, like out for a bit. Yeah, he might have actually been in the Hall of Fame already, but he didn't really play Magic. So uh, I think he came back... He, he he had, like, a weak year in, like, 99, ended up coming back in, like, 99-2000 to be both the national and world champion. Probably, like, picked up some top eights around 2003 just stopped playing for, I don't know, two or three years, mm -hmm. which was a long time at that point relative to professional magic history. So I had forgotten. He, the top American players at this point were, like, Gadiel Slifer and Mark Herberholtz, right? So uh, rest in peace, Gadiel. I think Gadiel probably won a pro tour. Uh, like a week before I I wrote this article. Um, so, yeah, John just wasn't playing, even if he was on the Hall of Fame. So uh, he didn't come back until uh, the Team Pro Tour for Pro Tour. Actually, testing with me actually brought him back, but that's hmm. another story. You know these, the innocuous land tap is the most common. Don't tap, don't you tap that coastal tower. John would often scream during testing, correcting Pakula's turn. But there are all kinds. Missing a ping with a Tim at the end of the turn, using your sensei's divining top at the wrong time, overvaluing a divining top, even more common. Wasting a mana, bluffing the trick you didn't have instead of the trick you did, putting a redundant pulse of the forge into your hand instead of a solemn simulacrum against black on turn two, when you were going to cast either. The small mistakes come in many shapes. What they have most importantly in common is that they are glossed over time and again usually unidentified by the players who make them. 
Kesselman's theory was that these little mistakes add up. Half a percentage here, half a percentage there. Make enough of the tiny lapses. Go so far as to refer to them as judgment calls. And the opponent becomes favored. If he is already favored, they help to hold his percentages. These mistakes become tells. They let the other guy know that when he goes for the big turn, you might not have enough blue to counter every one of his threats. They tell him he doesn't have to risk it all this turn. You're going to give him a free untap and a draw. So don't worry. What many players fail to see is that in the block check counter frenzy of an interactive magic duel, every little thing compounds with every other. Sure, tapping a coastal tower when you have 11 untapped islands and plains and the opponent has only one card in hand might not represent much, but that just means that the percentage you give away when making this mistake is small. It does not mean that you are not making a relevant mistake at all. Combined with other mistakes, it is exactly the kind of thing that can give the opponent the opportunity he needs to reverse an ostensibly hopeless game. Either the open he needs for the perfect turn you didn't realize he was sculpting, or the bait he needs to walk you into a bigger flub. This is like, wow. I need to like process this for a second. This is probably a lesson I need to hear, because I, my biggest problem as a Magic player is little mistakes. I, I could actually just... I watched um, last week. We both made top eight of a modern PPTQ yeah. playing same seventy four. Should have been same seventy five, but I, I was afraid of you, so I added an extra core firewalker to my sideboard <laughs> um, uh, in controversy to our to our blood pact. But I was watching you play against this Grixis guy in your round of eight match, and um, there was a turn where he had like three. You had four land in play, all untapped. You had a bunch of cards in hand, um, and you only had like one relevant spell, but he doesn't know that, right? Yeah. You have like a bunch of cards in hand, four land untapped, and he's at like a middle life, right? Like something like nine, like not a lot of life, but not dead either. Yeah. And he has three land in play, and he taps to fetch a taps watery grave, and then he taps his only other source of blue, leaving only a blood crypt open to cast a thought scour. Well, he did the order correctly, right? So somebody might accidentally thought scour first and then tap the fetch the watery grave. That's horrible. That will that will sometimes mill his only watery grave when he does that. So he he made that correctly. Mm. Um, but to tap down to no blue in a permission deck against your four open mana is I. I couldn't even contain myself when I was watching. Like, like that's the kind of thing on the mana taps. Like, you cannot play that way, right? Like, if you, like, you're just dead. Like, if you had, like, a good hand, he literally put himself in a position where he was just dead to instance. Or, like, or it's so far down, right? Like, that he couldn't even possibly recover, right? Like, imagine you put him to three or something. Yeah. Right, because he can't resist you with a blood crypt, right? So if he wants to make that play sequence, he has to do one or the other, right? Not do them both. So, I, you know, obviously I would have rather been playing against you in the top four instead of him. But, like, when he did that, I was just like, I am, I just can't imagine losing to this. Because so, somebody who would make that play, right? It's, it's, it, that play, I think that a lot of players who aren't familiar with how we would approach the matchup don't even realize they made a mistake. But it's a catastrophic mistake, right? Like, 
That's kind of a mistake where he ended up winning that game, right? In part because your hand wasn't very good, right? But like to just not care what your four cards in hand were and just put himself in a book. Imagine you had four one casting cost spells. He's at negative two if he makes that play, right? Like that's that's the the point of what I'm trying to get. Yeah, it makes sense. So, and that you know that's a, a small mistake he, he might not even have realized. Yeah, yeah, people. I think that that the average player in that position doesn't even realize they're making a mistake. But that is a catastrophic mistake. Yeah. Like, it's so bad. Like, but the reason it's so bad, it's like what I talked about being the 40% mistake against the You can't do the Kakushos play anymore because the Legend Rule is different. Yeah. So what happens sometimes, like, they just get you to 10 and then cast a second Kakusho and you're just dead. Right? So you think, like, 10 is reasonably safe, but and then both the Kakusho triggers happen. But that doesn't happen anymore. So Legend Rule is different. Anyway. Um... The reason, like, what I'd call it the 40% mistake is because he was in a pretty good position. He ended up actually winning that game. But, like, he made a decision that basically says, oh, I'm probably going to win, but then just, like, instead I'm definitely going to lose, right, mm-hmm. if the opponent has X. So you have to just kind of assess for that, which is actually what we're talking about in the next couple of paragraphs. Let's get back to the article. All right, back there, At Pro Tour Columbus, Gary Wise made a seasoned proclamation. The one of Magic's all-time great old men, a Pro Tour champion, and successful player known both for wise words and limited skills, Gary left the gravy train to become a sideline reporter. Like Chris, his experience and, forgive the pun, wisdom, followed him into semi-retirement. Your ability to succeed at the top levels of Magic is directly related, Gary told me, to the ability to control your tells. This floored me. I was getting ready for... Minimize your mistakes. The same thing I'd heard over and over from teachers like Finkel and Steve, advocates of the narrow vision that had allowed them to see only one play, the right one. Gary's position introduced an important dissenting opinion. Everyone at the top levels makes the right play most of the time, regardless of talent or preparation. The reason we point out mistakes is that they stick out like sore thumbs when good players make them. Everyone wins the landslides, can capitalize on the mana screw. That is why new formats at the pro level are so seldom dominated by reactive decks. The distinction at the top is the ability to win the close ones, and controlling your tells becomes vitally important when you assume that the other guy will make the right play if you give him the right information. Gary's Potato Nation teammate Mike Turian once told me that he thought he had never played a perfect game of Magic, not one. This is a daunting statement considering the fact that Mike is considered one of the best beatdown players of all time and better at correctly assessing when to bluff a trick when attacking and limited than perhaps any other mage in the game's history. That is a rare skill at any degree, let alone the best one. What about short games, I asked. You know, the ones where your decisions don't matter. Your mana screwed, or he's mana screwed, or... Mike stopped me and said that each hunch of your shoulders or glance down at your hand, the measure of time between priority passes, every close reading of the opponent's seldom played cards, can be a potential mistake because they can cost you if the opponent is watching. But it gets worse if the opponent is Finkel. On the scale of tight play only, this might not make a lot of sense, but consider how much virtual card advantage passes between players purely on their acting or not. If you read Matsu Tribe's Sniper three times, it might mean that you are holding a flying creature. The wrinkle on your face might say that it is a 1-1. One, one. 
but calm and considering your next drop that it is a 3-3. If you pass without making a play, it might signal not to attack, that the sniper has other work to accomplish than a point or a trade or a waltz into a combat trick, depending on the position of the board. That kind of unchecked perusal might tell your opponent, the one who's correctly reading you already, that you are not holding the hinder he passed you, and that it is safe to go for his big legend the next turn. Or maybe you're bluffing him. Back in 1998, Bob Maher gave me a list of the worst of my many bad tells. I'm generally a sloucher, but sit up straight when I have the nuts. I overvalue consistent mana development and sculpt my play around it, rather than maximizing my ability to make drops on tight land like Alan Comer, or bluff action when I have too much mana, like Chad Ellis. I'm far too reliant on avoiding combat and position my creatures desperately to prevent attacking and blocking from both sides of the red zone, until I think I can break through. Worst of all, I look at my fanned-out graveyard, scoop it up, and put it back on the table in a big pile each and every time I start doing the math for the big finish. I literally still do that when I'm playing Burn. Still do. I I can remember doing it on Saturday. I have tried to correct many of my tells. I threw a lot of concentration, now no longer shuffle all my lands to the right side of my hand whenever I pick up my opening seven. You ever watch people? And they, they like, they like go and they go like this. You know how many lands they have in their opening yeah. hand. You just have to watch how they, how they, how they do their hand. It's actually that's one of the best. That's one of the best. Yeah, tells. I mean, it's the thing. Like, it's also when they when they draw a land and they just immediately play it without shuffling their hand. Yeah, like if I have to play a land that I, I draw off the top, I usually will draw and, and shuffle my hand for a second, look at it, and then play the yeah, land. Yeah, but opening hand, I'm telling you, yeah. just watch your opponent draw this. So his opening seven, it'll tell you how many lands he has. Um. I'm sure 90% of you do either this or the opposite every single game, whether you realize it or not. I've tried to go poker face like Steve OMS to the point that I sometimes enter an unshakable trance of apathy during play. The other night during playtesting, Paul chuckled at my complete lack of emotion when Tony's ink eyes stole my arc slogger. They figured apparently wrongly that there would be some reaction. This too is a possibly dangerous course because in my case, at least mock apathy can lead to real uncaring, resulting in not recognizing the danger of the opponent's ostensibly non-lethal Kukusho attack and essentially blunting reaction to the point of not paying attention to the basic elements of the game. Maintaining one face of your game, the one that doesn't give away your hand or plan, can cloud the awareness that comes from a healthy terror in the face of a giant threat. It is probably better than my default play, though, which involves jumping out of my seat when I unforge the Sword of Fire and Ice on that there troll aesthetic. Play equally commented on by observers, fans, and passers-by as the non-reaction natch. Like the tells themselves, the mask is something that needs to be controlled. Winning the coin flips. The ultimate skill of John Finkel at his height reduced to its germ was the ability to hold even his tightest margins. Players during John's era as the best in the game would talk about how he could, like a stage magician, win the closest games, the games that no other player could win, by pulling veritable rabbits from his hat, while the hyperbolic and charismatic among the professional elite would say things like, The difference between John Finkel and me is the difference between me and the worst player in the room. What John could do was turn an unfavorable match a little bit at a time until it was 51-49 in his favor, 
then ride that percentage difference into a check mark in the win column, usually by ending the game before the opponent could draw it out. Consider John's legendary draw-go versus Forbidian playtest sessions against Chris Pakula, himself one of America's finest at the time, where John would win all the games on one side of the matchup for hours, trade decks, and then win all the games on the other side. How did John do this? This is like actually a real thing. Um, BDM once made this deck when we were testing for Pro Tour uh, Charleston that he liked, and I was just like, this deck's terrible, and the reason I thought it was terrible is I could never beat the deck that I was going to play the Pro Tour. So I beat BDM like seven games in a row, and I was just like, you're, this deck's terrible, and you're terrible. Right? Like, you're terrible, and it's terrible that you thought of this deck, and I'm the best, right? Mm-hmm. So John has just watched us play for like an hour. Just said nothing, just watched us play for an hour. And he's like, actually, I like Brian's deck. Let me play you, Mike. John beat me like six in a row until I gave up. Wow. Like I just I just gave up. And like Brian's just like, how come I couldn't do that? I'm like, I don't know, because you're terrible and I'm great, but I'm not as great as this guy. <laughs> like he just I don't know what it was. Like I crushed Brian every game. And John beat me so badly. Like I just gave up. Like and it's weird, right? You know? Like, he really, he just had, I mean, had, <laughs> had, he had something that other people know. I wish I could bottle it, and I would sell it to people right before PTQ. <laughs> Finkel was a master, was, was a master at figuring out what was important. His signature was reducing all the disparate elements that compose a game state to a single fulcrum and then focus on that one thing until the entire game tipped in his favor. Depending on the matchup, it might be life total, cards in hand, holding instants until an end step flurry, laying more lands, or saving, even redundant removal for a key permanent. While the opponent was busy managing all kinds of resources, considering the variables, maximizing his card advantage, tapping mana, or trying futilely to play around John, the machine would push and push at the one thing that mattered until the game fell into place. In the course of this effort, he did two things very well. One, John capitalized on the opponent's mistakes. Every lost percentage point, every mistapped mana, every tell, and certainly every serendipitous open from the other side of the table was squirreled away until John hit the magic tipping point. Two, John constricted time. He was the absolute master of the long game because of his ability to eke opponent mistakes into favorable positions, but would never give the opponent a spare turn if he had the chance to win immediately. Not one for draws, John would almost characteristically switch gears into an alpha strike or seemingly low percentage, but measured creature play in order to rob the opponent of even one draw step. If there's a weakness in his game, I think John overcorrects for this. That's why he lost to Kibler in the top eight of Pro Tour Darkest Engine, actually. Um, the people made many memes about this. Really? Yeah. He, uh, I, I don't I'm, think I, I, was, I, I knew about competitive magic at this point. Yeah, he, uh, if anything, uh, if he has a, a weakness, it's this. Um, I mean, he's right most of the time. Like, don't get me wrong. But, like, it's not often that we can point at something that he did wrong. And so if he did something wrong, it's, it's probably an overcorrection in this direction. Another implementation can be seen via the most famous screw job associated with the otherwise shining name Finkel, a story that involves a rare, 
first pick, with day three on the line. John was passing to his friend Steve OMS, a master drafter himself, who correctly put John on white by subtracting the variable picks from the packs John left him. After the draft, Steve asked John about his Odyssey first pick, where John told his longtime friend and Antarctica teammate that he had taken Wayward Angel. But prior to their feature match, EDT informed Steve that John had actually beaten him with Kirtar's Wrath. The story ends with a vengeful Steve ending Finkel's career or some such with a vindicated 2-0, though history tells us that John in fact played on day three at some point after this match. The question is how important is the card in the opponent's hand? The best players in the game can stare across the table and play optimally against the Wayward Angel, say, 98% of the time. Whereas, I have perfected the art of correctly reading the opponent's hand and making the wrong play anyway. The difference that makes Finkel legendary among even the elite is that the 2% of the time he will play wrong against magic. Uh, wrong magic against an angel, but the opponent will be holding Kirtar's Wrath. The important thing to understand here is that magic matchup percentages are the sum total of particular relevant elements of the game. Some of these things are tiny, like tapping the right mana when land is abundant. Some are hugely important, like knowing which 2% of the time the opponent has the rare other than what you've prepared to beat. In a recent tournament, I was frustrated after losing to Ponza with my Kurodistar red deck. As one of the trials I tested most, I knew that Ponza was about a 9-to-1 matchup in my favor and had already defeated the deck twice on the day. In one game of the loss, I was flooded, and the next I mulliganed to 5 and ate a Molten Rain. The classic sequence in which one loses an automatic matchup. In hindsight, I can see the error of my frustration. The matchup isn't 100%. You lose a game in 10, or even a game in 3 or 5 if not a match. And when you do, it's for a reason. In this case, the reason is the classic one. Something lines up a certain way that can be repeated, and you don't take it home. You win almost all the games where your spells come out, but that's the definition of a blowout matchup. You only lose when your draw sucks, and he can capitalize. My opponent fulfilled just that condition in his victory. For a scene like Finkel. If you know what makes a matchup tick... You can make, or at least aspire to make, the plays that John at his height made, the ones that mattered. At the same time, you can force exactly the mistakes that rob the opponent from fulfilling his matchup victory conditions. And I believe his final top eight, and certainly one subsequent to the OMS lie that ended his career, Finkel famously used Sparksmith to kill a Wirewood Herald. His opponent correctly searched Timberwatch Elf into his hand, where it remained until his life fell to zero points. Finkel, with no other goblin in hand, put the fear of the machine into his opponent's Timberwatch elf. He refused to hit play lest it be destroyed, but was instead made impotent by a masterful bluff and virtual card advantage. Forcing the opponent to give you a 40% mistake is, not, is like not playing his Timberwatch elf against a red deck with no ostensible way to kill it. Easier than you think. In this past extended season at Grand Prix Boston, I was playing my Red Deck Wins deck. Oh, go figure. I was playing a Red Deck at a, at a Grand Prix. <laughs> For reference, here's the deck Josh Ravitz used to make top 16 of the Grand Prix. The same deck I played. Four Curse Scroll, four Firebolt, two Fledgling Dragon, four Grim Lava Mancer, four Jackal Pup, four Lava Dart, four Ma uh, two Magma Jet, four Monk Fanatic, four Seal of Fire, four Volcanic Hammer. 
4 Bloodstained Mire, 8 Mountain, 4 Rashad Import, 4 Wasteland, 4 Wooded Foothills, uh, Cyborg, 4 Ensnaring Bridge, 4 Electrostatic Bolt, 3 Pulverize, 4 Sulfuric Vortex. This is just like the same deck I still play, right? Like it's yeah. just, I bet that those are the same <laughs> fetch lands that I owned then and the same Grim Lava Mancers that I owned from then. And we've got like Goblin Guide is better than Jackal Bob. But yeah. like this is literally I just play the same deck, I guess, for the past twelve years. Like are these are like the same physical magic cards, I'm guessing. Was it, was it, didn't we talk about some article no long term allegiances or alliances? Dude, I barely ever lose when I play that deck. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um for purpose of this example, it is very important that you pick up the subtle templating of this version of Red Deck Wins. What does it play? What does it not play that might be common. My opponent took game one easily. I was about 50% against Columbus-era life sideboarded, but needed to steal percentage to win such a coin flip. Therefore, knowing I was about to lose the first, I made sure my opponent put me on Magma Jet for game two. So just to note, I have two Magma Jet and four Volcanic Hammer. So I knew I was going to lose game one. I cast Magma Jet to make Mm. sure he put me on Magma Jet. Uh, at the time, people typically played Magma Jet or Volcanic Hammer. But you played both. I played both. And in fact, I played four Volcanic Hammer and only two Magma Jet. Uh, I think there's probably an article that might be interesting we talked about another time called The Dan Paskins Seal of Approval. Dan Paskins was one of the top red deck designers at the time, where I talked to Dan Paskins and Patrick Sullivan. Go figure, I would talk to Patrick Sullivan about building a red deck, and we determined what the optimal 60 for red was. Like, I had Fledgling Dragon in my main deck. Most people had Blistering Firecat. Um, the, but anyway, and this is actually the deck that got Ravitz on the, on the gravy train. So he made top 16, and then he never looked back for, like, X years. Anyway. In the second, I got exactly the position Red Deck wins once against life. Mana Disruption against a Mana Light opponent. I led with Jackal Pup, but my opponent was unafraid even given his resource-tight draw. There was no way I could disrupt his game plan as he had a basic planes and all the right cards for a safe 3-4 to four combo. On his second turn, the hated life slammed down Daru's Spiritualist into my Magma Jet deck, flashing Nomad's Encore and Worthy Cause. So Daru's Spiritualist is a 1-1 creature that, if it gets targeted, uh, gets plus 0, plus 2. So uh, that's very important. Uh, to note in this case, because if you have Magma Jet uh, for your removal card, they can safely play Daru Spiritualist because you target it, it will become three toughness. Uh, so when you target it repeatedly with Nomads on Core, it gets infinite toughness, and then you can sacrifice it to Worthy Cause. This is literally a turn three infinite life, right? Mm. So he just plays Daru Spiritualist on turn two because he knows I have Magma Jet. I calmly showed him Volcanic Hammer and Wasteland, ending the game right there. And you know what? I'm not even that good. Love Mike. So, do you see what I did? I made sure that he knew you had the Magma Jet. He put you in the Magma Jet version, yeah, and then went off in with you know no fear of volcanic hammer. Which was I, I'm actually a four volcanic hammer deck, right? Yeah, and I'm just splashing for Magma Jet. Um, but I think just but that was like a, but what you did there was you knew the the knowledge of like what people played and use that to like your your advantage by showing him the, the Jet game one. Yeah. So think about when you sit down at the ta- you know we sit down at F and M or we sit down at whatever tournament like. I think it's pretty common that, like, somebody plays their first two cards and I know what the next 58 cards in their deck are, right? So, you know, we're like, oh, that version has this, that version has this, right? Like, just think about, we played against two two or three, I, I think I played against three different Grixis decks at the at the PPTQ, 
played against Matt Frano, I played against the Grixis Delver guy that you played. Like, each of those decks, even though they're the same colors and have many cards in common, right, they have, like, Thought Scour in common, Serum Visions in common, maybe Snapcaster Mage. You might theoretically sideboard very differently against them. Like, one deck has Delver of Secrets and Snapcaster Mage. One deck has, like, you know, Tazigur and... and uh, against um uh death shadow against the Grixis player i left after that did you uh pour in chain of the rocks uh i did but i did not i think i did board in chain of the rocks but not path of exile he had a lot of basics so um you know yeah i think i might have poured it in both i i, I don't 100 percent recall i boarded in so uh just this is an example i thought like matt ferrando is probably the best player in the tournament right so i played against him like in, Myself included. I think he's probably the best player in the tournament. He made it quite clear to us that he didn't think that he could lose to a burn deck, right? Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. I crushed him game one. And I was just, like, just super easy. Like, this is how it always goes. Then I played, like, my, like, medium development anti-Death Shadow game plan game two. Like, just all the way that we talked about playing, right? I'm like, my offense is going to be based on Eidolons, right? So... And I was, like, middle turns, like, turn four, lay two Eidolons. Like, kind of, that's my my turn sequence, right? Like, probably not the same turn, right? Then he's just, like, responds with engineered explosives for two, right? With two open, and then passes. So I just won on the spot. So I attacked, and he just, like, blow up my engineered explosives on, like, Boros Charm. Like, Eidolons, like, he can't win anymore, right? If, if Eidolons live, right? Because he just takes four for every single spell in his deck. Right, like he has to use engineered explosives on the spot. It's the only way that he can he can survive the next turn. Um, but I wouldn't. I think I cited all my Boros charms out against the Delver guy, just for sake of argument. Um, but I kept them in against Matt, who his deck kills himself. You know, you just wanna. Mm-hmm. I think you only have to land two spells against Death Shadow to win. You literally, only have to land two. We just make sure you land the ones that you want to land. Like, like their guys aren't even online unless they have, like, six life. <laughs> How hard is it to, <laughs> to deal six? You know? Yeah. I mean, like, and that's the that's the, the way it is. And I think, again, I think Matt is, like, probably the strongest player in the tournament. Um, but I just decided differently. I think I decided differently also against the other Grixis player I played. I, yeah, I don't think I brought in Path. I think I decided in Chain to the Rocks home. Mm. Chain to the Rocks was super outstanding for us. Yeah. It was like... I'm a fan. Like, um, you know, you kind of took Inspiring Vantage Global, you know, when you won regionals. Like, everyone plays Inspiring Vantage. When I first played Inspiring Vantage, the reactions I got were, like, nice standard card, right? Now everybody plays it. I think everybody's going to be playing Chain to the Rocks next. It's so, It's too really? good. All right. I, I no, I, I I believe you. I played the card and it was great. It's like it's unbelievable how good they, it's like Pad the Exile with no downside. Right. The problem is you have to bring Path of Exile in against like Noble Hierarch decks. You can't path a Noble Hierarch on turn one, you're gonna lose. Right? Like it's it's literally better to let them keep the Noble Hierarch than to path the Noble Hierarch on turn one. Because like at least maybe later you can searing it, right? Like <laughs> Like all your searing stuff kills that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's. I think it's going to be spectacular. It's okay. so good. It's like it, a it stops like prot red guys like 
core firewalker it doesn't trigger reality smasher it's i don't know it's just like an I, the other thing i don't like to path i mean i'll path a tasker if i have to right path a gurmag angler but so much rather just chained to the rocks it no yeah it it definitely seems so much better against death shadow like because their their mana is how many lands they play is really important yeah, well, yeah, the other thing's, yeah. their operating mana is actually one of the limiting factors, because, yeah. like, in a lot of their good draws, like, they only have two lands in play at the end of the game. And because the end of the game is, like, defined being pretty narrow, so they only have, like, two or three lands in play. If you give them additional operating mana, you might just get killed. Yeah. Right? That's the... Anyway, talk about the article. Yeah. Um, I think this article is super good. It it unveils the secrets of, of John Finkel's... Uh, Prowess, I guess, or yeah. you know, or you know, gives you a, a, a glimpse into I his. Cannot world. believe I'm just literally playing the same deck I was playing. <laughs> I forgot. That. <laughs> I'm sure it's the same Grim Lava Mancers. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I definitely resonate a lot with um, the small percentages adding up because I think my weakest the uh, my weakness as a Magic player is. I think I make a lot of small mistakes during games, and it's nothing like huge. Like I, I know I'm like a competent enough player, um, but it's it's the small things that like I'll I'll like notice it like right afterwards too, or I'll make like in like in in the RPTQ. I mean, I just tap my mana wrong for no reason, and I I realized it like right after I had cycled the card, and I I threw away my top eight position because of it. So, uh, you mean when you so you were like you were flooded, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I was like I I. I so in, in, in the RPTQ, I had only one white land yeah. against Ramp, uh, and I think I like tapped in a weird way where I left up Ipnu Riverlet and also a Prairie Stream, uh, and I had a oh, oh the RPTQ, not the PPTQ, sorry. No R- RPTQ, and I this is when I was playing Second Sun, and I cycled a Hieroglyphic Illumination because I was trying to hit um, another white source for so when he I think I, I had a Second Sun. So the, the point of the game was that I was trying to. Find another white source so that if I cast Second Sun and he World Breakers me, I can draw another, have another white source to play to cast a, the approach. another Second Sun. Uh, and I slightly a little higher with Illumination, and I drew a cast out. I, I had only blue lands, and I, I'm like, okay, I can't cycle this cast out now. But it mattered because uh, I, I conceded the game with only blue lands in play, and the top of my deck was kind of planes. There was a planes on top of my library. And you would have won the game. I would have won the game, and, and that you would have locked up my top eight spot. I think you just tapped correctly. So. Yeah, so. And it was heartbreaking too because it's it's such a small mistake, right? Like it, it's not. Uh, I, I, when I at the time when I, I made the play, I didn't think it was like a huge huge deal, but it ended up being really tragic for me. So yeah, I just did similar thing. I played against Dave. Dave beat me twice in that PPTQ we just played last week. Um, his deck is like his deck is like lousy with uh, Path to Exile and and. Um, uh, goes quarter right so like when i had a fetch land like even if it cost me life i was like super deliberate about getting sacred foundry because i was just like this sucks that i got under 90 90 of the time i would fetch mountain here but um i have to fetch sacred foundry to preserve the mountains in my deck because he is going to pad the exile and or ghost quarter me later in this game Right, so it actually it came up. I went to my last. I only played two mountains on Saturday, but I went to my last mountain like every game I played against him. And so, um, it's just 
you know, you just have to be like very vigilant about those kind of things. Because the thing is, like, you're you're basically saying I'm going to trade two life now for like drawing three cards sometime later in the game. Basically, the you know, the the bet you're making. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's something to work on. Just a small observation from the PPTQ. You were flooded when your opponent was relatively low life total, and you drew a fetch land, right? You had, like, two other fetch lands in hand, and you were probably at a terminal point on how many lands you could fetch, right? Because we only played four fetchable lands total in our entire yeah. deck, right? So you are just, like, kind of frustrated, and then you fetched for your, like, Sacred Foundry or whatever. My goal was, like, because I had fetch lands in hand. Thin, right? Like, yeah, so they're already dead, though. That's the problem. Yeah. Okay, so the thing is that the reason that that was a bad play, in my opinion, is that... You turned your Searing Blaze into a sorcery. So you no longer can use the Searing Blaze on his turn uh, with Landfall, which is, like, one of the one of the things that you get by playing as many fetches as we did. Yeah. So, like, you still have Searing Blaze, but you now have to play it as a sorcery. And then the net result was that you actually got your Searing Blaze caught by a Mana Leak. Yep. And, like, if you had played correctly, you wouldn't have gotten your, your Searing Blaze caught by a Mana Leak, I think. Right? So, um, that's the... Like, but... I don't know. Like, no, yeah, he was, did sixteen points of damage to you with a with a snapcaster mage yeah. that should have died. Yeah, that's the and, yeah. So small mistake, and that ended up like I could, maybe I could have won that game. I mean, oh yeah, yeah. Like, I, I drew I, like nine lands that game. Right, I have totally but, been in the situation that you're in where you're like playing an aggressive deck and you're just flooded. And you're just like, I'm gonna break this. I was game. I was so flooded that game. Yeah, but yeah. I I made he also he lost he won the game on like five life though right yeah. so if the blaze resolves and you need like, so many turns by just not getting killed by the snapcaster man exactly like so like yeah and like running him out of resources i draw more card you know yeah. it, so the game could have been totally different but i i just like messed up yeah, and so. it was a small mistake too that's like okay, that is a mistake is you have like two basically dead fetch lands in your hand and you rip a fetch land, right? Yeah. That's the thing. You're just like, oh, I'm so frustrated. Just get rid of these things, right? Yeah. So the worst thing in the world now at this point is that if you draw the Sacred Foundry, it's even worse than the situation you're in. Think about it. The likelihood of you drawing the Sacred Foundry is so low. It's like 2%, right? Yeah. But you gain so much, much by, not by, doing by not, the, yeah, by not making that mistake. It. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. So... <laughs> Anyway, I'm glad you like this one. Um, no, it was good. I, I think it, it's definitely something that I, I that keeps coming back and how I'm trying to uh, get better at magic. Um, You're getting better at magic. No, of course. Jerry Thompson wants to be friends with you. <laughs> he high five me at DC. <laughs> it was pretty sweet. Uh, uh, Probably listens to our podcast. I hope so. Um, I listen to his podcast. Sure. Like, no, I've definitely gotten a ton, so much better at magic in the past year. Yeah. Thanks, Michael J. Uh, but there are definitely things I see in my play that I need to improve upon, and this is one of them. It's just the it's these small mistakes that add up that can just be catastrophic, and they're you know, and I think I'm I'm trying I, I'm always trying to put myself to win the tournament like i i you know i adapted the how to win the ptq mindset no, no no that's exactly right like when i didn't draw the last round of the swiss right my opponent's just like hey would you like to draw and i'm like i can't draw he's like of course you can we both draw on a top eight i'm like no 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 if i draw i'm just gonna end up playing against roman or the guy who beat me in round one and they're gonna be on the play against me and then i'm gonna lose right like i can't draw i have to like if i lose to you i lose to you now and that sucks but Literally, the delta is five packs. If I lose now or I lose an hour from now, is the same, right? That's yeah. The, that's kind of the... the it, you, I think that's exactly... I learned that from Owen Turtenwald. Like, Owen Turtenwald literally played the last round of Swiss instead of drawing into an open top eight once. 
which actually put Mike Sigrist into the top eight. And I felt like a moron because I drew the last round. Because like we were like, all right, let's all just draw into top sixteen money. And I drew the last round, and I actually had better breakers than Sigrist. And I played against Jund, and I was like, I would have just definitely beaten Jund because that's what I do, you know. Mm-hmm. And Owen eliminated one of the people who's supposed to be having the the right breaker, the right record for um for for top eight. And so Sigrist made made top eight at like X and two or X and three, whatever the whatever the the cutoff is. Mm-hmm. And like again, you know, I was just like, oh my god, like it's like everyone draws in this position, right? There's just no there's no reason not to. I can't make top eight, but I would have made top eight if uh you know. Anyway, I learned that from Owen. Told me at dinner. Play the last round because it's just the difference is it's so dramatic if you're on play for the for through the, the especially the, the against three like, most important matches of the tournament. Yeah, especially against me or like, you know a bad matchup. I mean, I certainly like I I am not so arrogant in my lifetime record against you that I am willing to give you play for free. Yep, in respectable. In a situation where there are literally only three relevant decks left in the tournament, right? Like, and you're one of them, right? So, you know, I'm one of them, you're one of them, and the other guy who you drew with in the last round is one of them from my perspective, right? I see, like, all the other decks left in the tournament, I feel like I have a great matchup against. Yep. You know, and that's the, you know, I just, you can't give play away, right? Otherwise... You would have just been posting another freaking Twitter picture. <laughs> be like, the streak is over. It is now Fusco time. All right. So we are going to go get some skewers of pork belly and chicken skin. Maybe make time for ice cream. Maybe not. And then we're going to play the midnight pre-release of Ixalan. Hashtag Ixalan. And it's possible around 2 or 3 a.m. tonight... Y'all will see Twitter updates from Roman of his next victory <laughs> against me in a post podcast recording tournament. I think I think we should definitely record at like three a.m. tonight, like three or four a.m. Dude, I have a whole weekend of life to do. Or are you just gonna sleep until noon? I mean, no, we, we I'm can, not. I have to get up at like. We can now, we can record like in between rounds or something. Quick updates or whatever. Pause. It depends if I the last pre release I played in, I started off zero and three, so I might not be interested in, in, in recording. <laughs> All right, let's find uh, out. Anyway, now. so this is the Ancestral Ray Club podcast. You can. Uh, Find us on iTunes. You can. And on Mana Deprived. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to us. Tell give your us a, friends to subscribe to us. Yeah, give us a nice review. Uh, if you liked it, you can you know, send me a nice message on Twitter or something. Roman underscore Roman Fusco. Under, underscore Fusco. Uh, if you didn't like it, you can go to Flores with your it's Five with Flores. So it's like, <laughs> we call it the Five with Flores complaint line, actually. But, uh, you send them over this way, but I'll just delete them without reading them. That's <laughs> what I do. All right. All right. Uh, let's go get some dinner and then uh, crack some packs. Awesome. Sounds good. All right, it's pushing 3 a.m. Um, I was asleep at the table, and <laughs> Roman said, hey, let's record. Uh, we're joined for this short segment by Ryan Sachs. Hello. Star City Games columnist Ryan Sachs, and uh, I guess 
some sort of vegan barn to to Zach Hill. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh... All right, so uh, how's everybody doing? Uh, I'm too old. How are you doing? I'm right? also 2-0. Have yeah. you guys lost but, any games? Uh, I, I did. I did I lose a game. game. I did lose a game. You know, it, it, it happens. God no. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah. Mike and I both opened a Hawatli. Okay. Brian was talking. Awesome. I mean, yeah. Come on, man. In the oh, middle of the sentence. Tired, I, I was. I was excited to talk about this wonderful board state Go with four Mark of the Vampires that never ended in a 40-minute game. What's that do? It's a four-mana enchantment that gives plus two, plus two, and lifelink. So why do you think those uh, those enchantments? Enchantments are really good in this format. Uh, the removal is just really clunky. Like, and it, it doesn't always like. There, there's not, there's not much efficient removal, and I mean, giving something lifelink just ends games, brings you back from behind, and the flying one ends games. They just do things that other cards in the set don't appear to do. Do you have like evasion gristures that you put them on? Uh, so I wish I did in my deck. I don't think my deck's particularly good. No. I would like to put it on an evasive creature. I mean, I have some cards with trample. My deck um, is dumb. Your, your deck, yeah. I looked at it and it seemed good. I don't know if you saw mine. I didn't even draw my good um, cards in either of those no, games. No, it was, it was great. I'm playing white cards with flyers. no I'm playing some white cards and there are no planes in my deck. Roman uh, was trying to get me to cut my three, four flyers for five. In lieu, Those cards are great. In lieu of seven casting costs, four fours. So it like no, I did not. I said you you Christ. no, you have a two three flying that you weren't playing. Okay, I didn't realize because it was the one in the sleeve. The, like, oh the, sure, the sure. Yeah, so he's just like oh, I you said cut the... cut a, a three four for the two three. No, I just cut like a rile or something. So so three the three four flyers really impressed me actually. Yeah. The, um, it's, been, it's been pretty good. The two-three flyer for three that makes all their stuff uh, come into play phenomenal. tapped. Yeah, if you have that on turn three, you we, we can't played lose. games for fun and it was like unbeatable. <laughs> you cannot lose. Like two They're dead. into that guy on the play. Unbeat. What if, what if you play the O three on one and get played on two? Um, you could. So in the first game, my second round, my first round, I just like raffles on my opponent. My second round, I was mana screwed all of game one, so I was just like super behind the whole time. But then I was just chip shotting him, and then so I was just like, oh, I think I can get him to do this. So then like I made like a really reckless attack where he would get like a bunch of trades in. Then he like alpha struck me back, but I had a bunch of lifelink. And then uh, so I'm like, all right. Then I played my haste dinosaurs that I couldn't play on turn two because I was mana screwed, and I'm like right. lethal. Sure. And then get him. <laughs> and, um, He's just like, ugh. All, all the potential blockers had come over to visit Michael J. But I, but I had two life left. I have just so much repeatable card advantage that I can never attack, but eventually I draw every card in my deck and then therefore win. I don't like, have any card advantage. My deck has two rats in it. I'm splashing crazy. Rummaging Goblin, and it's phenomenal. Is that card good? It's been insane. Because okay. there Which are one's so many Rummaging Goblin? Is that the, the three mana one one Rummager looter? Right. Yeah. 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 And it's just like, I, it's just that combined with like I have the Bob, the Dark Confidant rare, and like, oh, the uh, and like the the. There's an artifact that scries and then flips into a land that makes treasures draw cards. Just like you put all those together oh, yeah. and I can just turn through my whole deck until I find the like one card that matters. It maybe I've made my deck wrong because I both didn't play like my super fast guys, like one drops that can be like plus right. one plus one if you're right. And I didn't play my super expensive like six like six casting cost dinosaurs. You feel like there'd be a way to lean middle. one way or the other. I don't know, like I haven't really come I'm come close to losing a game, so I got Maybe not. I have four of that enchantment that like pacifisms you, and then you gain yeah, two four, life. Four of it. <laughs> yeah, um, that's pretty. That cool. That seems really good in your deck because you're you're playing a bunch of flyers. Yeah, I just put it on there either if they have a creature, creature that's creature bigger that than mine, 
yeah. or their flyer. Oh, I, I played against Green first round, so you he had, like giant creatures, and like oh here's like a five five, giant. and he's like. It's just, you're just always going to win the race. Stay home. You gain two life off it, too. Yeah, I also have, like, lifelink vampires, and I don't yeah. know what else. Uh, we all have Squatly. That's the thing. Like, everyone has Squatly. Everyone's opponent has Squatly. It's, like, not even... <laughs> it's not even... It's not even special. Yeah, we both opened one, and then uh, my round one opponent also had... We were, we were in the Huatli mirror. My round one opponent quickly lightning striked my Huatli as soon as I played it, and I was just like, come on, man, what... Why did you do that? And then I just and then I just had to stupid through the dinosaur that never attacked and never blocked the rest of the game because I just attacked with my flyers. Good job. I know. Poor, I actually I made a mistake. He had like uh, the three like he had some guy that like buffs off vampires. I'm sorry, buffs off dinosaurs, and I passivismed his giant dinosaur instead of just killing it with a red removal spell, and then that made it so I couldn't attack on the ground, because so I could have just been swinging with all my small guys, but his guy was still getting the dinosaur buff because of, uh, because of the, and then so it took me like five extra turns to win. Uh, so fun, fun, fun game thing that happened. Um, I like tried to take this gigantic turn against Roman where like I used my Huatli's ultimate to make all X minus one of his guys not able to block, killing some of them. I knew Roman would pay four to keep his guy alive, puts him to eight, then I threatened his flyer, swung with everything, and then he had the one-sided wrath. Oh. So, <laughs> when, and it's funny, settle, settle when, settle which kills also his own best creature. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I don't want to die. That or you're dead. Right. Yeah. So, funny enough, that same exact scenario happened in my round one. Wait, wait, I, but this is the hilarious part, right? right yeah, yeah. So, I have nothing, right? Oh. Roman's at eight, right? You but put I, lands in play. I put four lands in play, and I'm like, untap, fireball you for eight. I'm like, <laughs> the, <laughs> then he was dead. I forgot the card's called. Yeah, it's called un four. Unfriendly Fire. I had two in my hand, but... I ramped you to play. In a normal game, you can't cast them all. <laughs> but when your opponent ramps all of the basics out of your deck. Yeah. Take eight, yeah, yeah, brother. Yeah, take eight. Um, uh, but but my, that actually happened. But they, the, my uh, when opponent had a Huatli, uh, minus targeted like some stuff. Is that how you pronounce it? Or sure about this? I don't know. Huatl? I, I, I don't know I don't what the actual word is. Huatli? Apparently, that's also a chick, not a dude. Yeah. Yeah. But the warrior poet. In like... I got it. Gotta do your reading, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> get 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 caught with the lore. Uh, so my opponent. Minus... Okay, well, you tell me about the lore. Why doesn't Jace have a shirt anymore? Why did he go from being like the smartest wizard oh, to being a shirtless like, pirate? He got like effed over by Nicol Bolas. Yeah, oh, oh, all, right. all right, time to go for the last round. Hopefully, I will continue my streak of not losing any games. What about? All right, and we are back. Ryan, he's still inside. Uh, so you got paired against Ryan, so you guys just drew. Right? Yeah. So it didn't matter about the the payout, like the the difference in the packs. You or can't be the champion if you draw. That's yeah, the thing. We've can't. talked about this on many Friday oh my evenings. God. It's like three. What time is it right now? Three thirty-one. Three thirty. Oh my god. But it doesn't. We're we're drafting tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I would have played. I would have played. There would be blood dripping down oh, my neck right now from okay. it's, coming it's like, from it's my like incisors. Yeah. I know. I know. When you get paired against some rando, you, you're gonna play them without a doubt. But like, we both wanted to. Drink, you know, I mean, I thought for a second about drawing so I could go to bed, but my opponent sat uh, down sure. and he literally said, "I don't know how I'm here at 2-0, and I was just like, "No, no mercy." <laughs> All right, so before before you go off on your story, yeah. you know, we're, we're, so Ryan and I are, are drafting tomorrow. Yeah. Ryan's preparing for uh, Grand Prix Providence. Here, yeah. here he is. Hello. So, yeah, we, we, we just split. Star City Games columnist Ryan Sachs. Yeah. So we, we, we split to, you know, play some games for fun and get our packs ready for drafting yeah. tomorrow. Take it away, Michael J. 
Uh, I don't know. I just played the last round and I don't know, defeated my opponent no pretty quickly. No pretty sir. quickly. Uh, he was very salty about being defeated uh, yeah. after, after I, I, uh, attempting to we, draw. We witnessed with me. that. Yeah, uh, so he oh, said. Oh, he wanted to draw with you. Oh, he, wa oh, he asked uh, me for the draw, and I was like, that, uh, why would I draw with a, you? That's a bad question to ask Michael J. Flores, <laughs> as we've, as we've uh, historically found out. Okay, so. And earlier in the podcast, we talked about. <laughs> yeah, just don't draw, right? So, um, yeah, anyway, I, I don't know. I defeated him. He, he said, I hope you're happy. And after the first game, I'm like, okay, I defeated him. And then, like, so the second game, I defeated him again. You know, so I had the foresight of opening a bunch of haste creatures, two Boros charms, and four Chain to the Rocks. Uh, so it was basically, basically my modern deck. Um, and, I, you know, I defeated him with, like, a bunch of haste creatures. Like, basically, he would tap a bunch of mana for a thing. I would remove it and gain two life, <laughs> swing with all my guys, and we did that every turn. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, and then I was like, you know, I, went to shake his hand and you know, say thanks for the games or whatever and he's just like no sir me on the handshake <laughs> i hope wow. you're happy what did you what did you do to him no sir the handshake. no sir the handshake right no, he probably sir. was very unhappy was... about the not drawing but like whatever it's what, pre-release like, like it's a midnight pre-release yeah i almost just wanted to play like it's just i mean i'm here it's yeah. like three in the morning yeah. if i don't play what did i do with my fucking yeah. life yeah. right like <laughs> this is ridiculous, right? So, um, anyway, yeah, so he, he no-sorted the handshake at the pre-release, you know, I thought that was whatevs. Whatevs. Um, Better yeah. when I, uh, I, when I used to play competitive chess, yeah. and I once extended the handshake after beating someone. Yeah. I was, I was like 11. Yeah. I was 11, and they, uh, they were like 16, they took my hand and they crushed it. Yeah. And, I uh, got kicked out of the tournament, and I had to ice my hand for the rest of the day. Wow, like, really? They, like, I, I had like a microfracture in my pinky oh my or something. God. Yeah, like actually, was not not the best, not the best sport. <laughs> well, uh, anyway, so it's been a pretty successful night all around. Yeah. Uh, how did we, you know, enjoy the the set? Uh, it was a fun week. I, I crashed with some dinos tonight. Thoroughly enjoyed playing. It was super fun. Um, uh, it's limited though, so that's not like really a serious format. Okay, um, but, but when, you, when you play limited, <laughs> you have to play with your your modern deck. Yeah, I did. I got that's to that's fair. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. it, your deck like just was Boros and it built itself. <laughs> you had the Runaway Planeswalker, two Boros charms and everything. But also, I think that 2-3 dinosaur for three that is also Thalia. Oh like, yeah, that card's just... I, I had that in play on turn three many games in this. That card seems, <laughs> like a, really. that seems really pretty good in standard. I think it's an awesome. Well, first of all, it turns off all the haste creatures in standard. For example, Earthshaker, Kenra, Oncrop, Crasher, Captain Lannery, Storm, Glorybringer. No. Uh, you know. But the lands entering tap is real. Uh, it oh, has yeah. three toughness and all the all the damage does is two. Just two. Yeah, so it's like all magma sprays and shocks. So like, and what if now it's lightning strike? Yeah, but there's way more magma sprays and shocks in combination with each other. Sure. Than, and like, I think like that talons or whatever is a playable card. Mm -hmm. um, like, there's way more of those than there are. I think lightning strike is only. Well, there's two lightning strikes. Sorry, there's a braid and lightning strike. Yeah. Also. Also, you can have more than one in play, right? So. Thalia, that's oh, different, that, that is right? Big downside. You can't jam. A yeah. Also, it flies. So the thing is, like, I think two three flying on defense is actually better than three two first strike on defense. Three two first strike is better on attack, right? right? Like, can't get magma spray. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. Yeah, right. I just said that. Oh, I don't, I don't uh, pay attention. I mean, yeah. The, the other like, thing is, you know, heart of Kieran, if that's relevant. But, yeah. Um, 
Oh man, that would mess up Heart of Kieran. Good. What would? Then there, there's Jones comes into play tap. They can't crew. Sure, but also it can't. I was saying that Thalia can crew Heart of Kieran. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Depending on what shell you're throwing it into. But see, yeah, I, I, I mean, it does a similar thing and interacts on a different axis. I was assuming someone was going to slam me in the face with a hammer, nah. right? You, <laughs> you were assuming that there was a hammer for you to pick up and slam someone in the face with, right? We have different conceptions of the world. Okay, it's like going to be pushing 4 a.m. by the time I get home. Yeah. So I think I'm going to sign off for tonight. Um, All right. Thanks for tricking me into playing the pre-release. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Predictably, I am the Ixalan pre-release champion. I lost zero games. Um, oh, all hail the king. I agree. I agree. All hail the king. Oh, boy. Um, it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yep. Thanks for uh, guesting, Ryan. Yeah, for sure. Bye-bye.